and never knew my grandfather's real name. My dad told me my grandfather's name was Julius. On my dad's marriage certificate, it had the name Julian. Six years ago, I was handed a copy of my grandfather's death certificate. That had the real name. It was Julio. Julio Metal. It wasn't until I was 27 years old that my dad told me how my grandfather had really died. Suicide. Los Angeles Times, Los Angeles, California, Thursday, August 28, 1941. Worry over the European situation, his health, and his large business interests was believed to have been the motive for the suicide of Julio Metal, 62, refugee from Europe, who was found shot to death today in his home. Before that, my dad said it was heart disease, which I guess in some ways was true. His heart had had enough. On the nightstand beside his bed was a copy of William L. Shirer's Berlin Diary, a book dealing with Nazi methods and with conditions in Germany. My dad rarely talked about his father. The grandfather I knew was constructed of fairy tales. My dad told me he loved skiing, eating at fine restaurants, that he'd had an affair with Josephine Baker, the cabaret singer who wore a ring of bananas around her waist. Who knows what was really true? I held on to my grandfather's death certificate for three years, unaware that it would set me on a path which would consume me. Then in 2016, I went to Disneyland with my daughters. It was just after the election, and I didn't think that things could get any worse. Why not visit the house where the worst had happened? I had the death certificate crumpled up in my bag. It had the address of the house in Santa Monica where my grandfather died. A beige stucco, craftsman style, on a palm tree-lined street. I stood in front of the house where my grandfather had ended his life. My dad and my grandmother were in the house when it happened. It became real for me. And I felt what my dad must have experienced. What he carried around with him. Why, maybe he got stuck. A 19-year-old in the body of my dad. I started searching on Google, Ancestry.com, Newspapers.com. I even hired researchers to help me trace Yulio's path. I kept finding out more in archives, in intelligence reports, in Hitler's black book. I ignored my husband, my kids. I had to fill in the hole to unearth what was never said, what I never knew. This is my version, a third-generation investigation of World War II, persecution, betrayal, and secrets. The secrets I know now, the ones I'm not supposed to tell. I'm Camilla Metal Brinkman, and this is Recovering Yulio. What I know now? My grandfather was an only child, born in Yavorowa, Poland, in 1879. He was a Polish Jew. To avoid the First World War, my grandfather walked from what's now Ukraine to Barcelona, over 1,600 miles. In Barcelona, he opened one of the first money exchange offices on the Rambla, 
he changed his name from Julius, spelled with a Z at the end, to Julio. If he was going to do business with the Spaniards, he needed to sound like one. So Julio to the Spaniards. Me, I'll call him Julio. In 1929, he obtained Liechtenstein citizenship, and that gave him easy passage across borders. He owned companies in Switzerland, Spain, and Germany. He had his headquarters in Berlin, where he owned more than 100 properties. The tragic surrender of Austria to the German military machine commenced when the former Austrian Chancellor Kurt von Schuschnigg Failed to satisfy the demands of the German Führer. Will dabei in Zukunft nichts anderes sein, als was ich in der Vergangenheit war? In October of 1938, less than a year before the war broke out, Julio and my grandmother Jenny fled their home in Vienna for New York City. Their three children were scattered. My dad, Niceto, at a British boarding school. My uncle, Maurice, in London. My aunt, Camilla, in Romania. When Julio and Jenny landed in New York City, Julio set himself up with a suite of offices at 1834 Broadway, Columbus Circle. They lived on Central Park West. I only know this because of a footnote in a book. A Canadian professor, Gerhard Basler, wrote about the thousands of Jewish refugees who were denied entry to Newfoundland in the run-up to World War II, back when Newfoundland was a British dominion. Basler wrote about Yulio. Pages and pages. A page just for his photo. And this one footnote led me to the provincial archives in St. John's, Newfoundland. They had documents on Yulio. It was one of those serendipitous moments, I think, when you called. If you'd called six months before and said, I'm interested in these two files about the Metal family, you would have received those two files. We would have had no idea about the true extent of what we had. I asked them to make copies for me. And those kind Canadians did. A UPS driver dropped a brown banker's box at my door. 2,100 pages about Yulio. The box sat in my bedroom for weeks, unopened. I was afraid of what I might find. How is it that 2,100 documents were collected on someone who I thought was a largely unknown person and then stored in an archive for 80 years? Letters, telegrams, plus pages and pages of reports from intelligence officers, the Newfoundland Commissioner for Justice, even J. Edgar Hoover. I'm Beverly Bennett. I'm an archives technician with the Rooms Provincial Archives of Newfoundland Labrador in St. John's, Newfoundland. She'd been organizing the Justice Collection to make sure that researchers could access them. I came across these records um, and I thought to myself, well, this is a really interesting story. There's so much stuff here about metal. And the files, a lot of them are simply labeled logging-metal with a lowercase m. And I kind of looked at it wondering, what on earth type of logging is that? Metal logging? I, I don't know. And realized quickly that it was actually a surname. My last name was always difficult. Metal. Heavy metal. And now, I was misfiled metal. 
I never heard a word about Newfoundland from my dad. About a year after Julio and Jenny arrived in New York, the British Commissioner for Natural Resources in Newfoundland invited Julio to start a lumber industry there. I got pretty curious because there were so many interesting stories within the files. Why was the government so interested? Why had they censored all of these files? Everything that they did was sort of monitored by the government. And to the extent that every single piece of correspondence that they had sent back and forth about their business, about their personal lives, everything had been photographed and copied by the Newfoundland censor, which meant that we had a lot of records <laughs> about, uh, about the Metal family. Everything sent by mail to and from the Newfoundland Hotel where Yulia was staying, all of it was carefully copied and translated from German, French, Czech, Romanian, and Spanish into English. It was all typed. The police were authorized to enter Yulio's hotel room at the Newfoundland Hotel. Under the provisions of Regulation 63 of the Defence Regulations on the first day of September 1939. September 1st, 1939. That was the day Germany invaded Poland, the beginning of World War II. I authorize G. Bernard Summers to enter, if need be by force, the premises in the occupancy of Yulio Metal at any time of the day or night, and to seize anything found therein, which he has reason to suspect is being used or intended to be used, for any purpose or in any way prejudicial to the public safety or the defence of the island. Lewis Edward Emerson, Commissioner for Justice. They confiscated letters, documents, photos. All of this misfiled in an archive for 80 years. Until now. Maybe the universe, or maybe Yulio, wanted his story to be found. I'm living in this box. I meet my grandparents for the first time. I read letters from his office in Berlin. Euphemisms for deportations of his staff to concentration camps. And I pore over the intelligence reports and learn about the suspicions of those government officials. I have three comments to make on the passport of Julio Metal. Namely, that he has a distinct mark along the bald part of his head from the front towards the back, which might not unreasonably be a German student scar. This is not mentioned in the passport. Secondly, Julio Metal's eyes are brown, not grey. And thirdly, the photograph, although quite passable, is distinctly not a good one of the supposed subject. In fact, might not be him. Yours faithfully, Commissioner for Justice, Lewis Edward Emerson. I have that passport photo. It is Julio. His German student's scar, a Schmidt, is a dueling scar from fencing. My grandfather and grandmother, they must have known their letters were being read. My grandmother writes to my Aunt Camilla in Romania. Foreign languages always cause delay, so I suggest that in future you write in English so that I shall get your letters only four weeks after they are written. At the same time, you will brush up your English. Many kisses and love. Yours, mother. A postcard from a friend. 31st of January, 1940. Your New Year wishes reached us yesterday. 
We too wish you in the new world all that is hearty and good. Here and there, people from Vienna are still traveling via Zürich to America with long periods of waiting in Switzerland. Looking through the documents, I can see Julio had his hand in so many ventures. I get the sense that he was always working. And if I'm honest with myself, he seems manic. Since his arrival, Metal first of all interested himself in the question of a box factory. He then went and spent 10 days or so in a roadhouse adjacent to a small timber area at Salmonaire, about 40 miles from St. John's, and spent his time roaming through the woods, examining them with an apparently expert eye. I think he does know something about afforestation. He has now applied to the Commissioner for Natural Resources for a small area of a few square miles, which he proposes to experiment on. A letter from my Uncle Maurice, who later traveled to Newfoundland to help with the lumber business. For your birthday, dear Papa, I wish you lots of happiness. And above all, I hope you will take care of your health as energetically as you work. A professor who was hired to translate Julio's correspondence had his own analysis. He has also applied for a 15-year exclusive right to operate an airplane between here, Halifax, and New York. He ostensibly knows nothing about airplanes, and he proposes to pursue his request notwithstanding that he has already been refused any subsidy. The plane, capable of carrying four or five passengers, is to carry tourists between New York and St. John's. But authorities in Newfoundland were wondering about what they didn't see in Julio's correspondence and where his loyalties lay. The complete silence regarding the war is quite inexplicable, except on the basis that Jews are so international and the matter of victory so unpredictable that they deliberately put it out of their minds for the moment. Beverly Bennett from the archive says it wasn't just officials who thought something was up. At one point, he was, he was staying up late during the night and typing on his typewriter. And the woman in the next room became so suspicious of what he was doing, she was convinced that he had a teletype machine and was communicating with the enemy. The police report was in my box of documents. I was in my room, laid down on the bed, when I heard a ticking. I thought it was the sound of a telegraphic instrument. I heard the sound coming from room number 226. I tried the door and found that it was open. Then I went back to my room for a minute. I again went back to room number 226 and knocked on the door. A man called, come in. I opened the door and entered. I said, I'm sorry, I thought this was my room. I made a mistake when I went into room number 226. I saw a man using a typewriter. I did not notice any wires leading to the typewriter. Julius Metall, unable identify according information furnished. Stop. Hoover. Telegrams were going from Washington, D.C. to St. John's, Newfoundland. The police chief in St. John's was suspicious. He even contacted FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. January 16, 1940. Mr. P.J. O'Neill, Chief of Police, St. John's, Newfoundland. I desire to acknowledge receipt of your letter dated December 21, 1939, together with the enclosure described therein, relative to Julio Mattel. Permit me to thank you for your splendid cooperation in communicating to the Federal Bureau of Investigation the information mentioned in your letter. Sincerely yours, John Edgar Hoover, Director. 
The Commissioner for Justice was extra suspicious. Chief Commissioner Royal Canadian Mounted Police Ottawa writes they and their companion are suspected of alien enemy activities. Their correspondence, which will be forwarded by first mail, deals with numerous commercial ventures in various parts of world in such terms to create idea of facade to cover hidden activities. Nothing but the box matters to me. I worry about our house burning down and taking my banker's box of documents with it. It seems like the only thing I am worried about losing. I go to Staples and make copies of everything. I give the copies to a friend. Both our houses can't burn down on the same day, right? I'm wondering about this fear. It's not just the box. As I get deeper into the story, I worry that someone will steal my computer, all my files, all my backup hard drives. I have so many backup drives. I worry that I won't be able to tell this story or finish it. Julio knew what was going on with his mail. He numbered every letter. Yet he was so driven to make a new life in North America. In addition to building sawmills, importing bentwood furniture, exporting plant clover, fish meal, dried codfish, smoked herring, investing in a box factory, importing Romanian jam, there was manufacturing fine leather handbags and more from the professor who translated the documents. Many projects were taken up by the metals and their associates, pursued with detailed correspondence to a certain stage, and then dropped. Zipper fasteners is a case in point. Then after several months, Mr. Julio Metal suddenly states that there are no prospects in zipper fasteners. Or another instance can be given in the case of Mr. Rudich, Mr. Julio Metal's son-in-law. He states he wants to leave Romania and settle in Canada. And there's a long interchange of correspondence regarding the prospects of canned chicken, the preparation of mica, a project for gin distillation in New Brunswick, and the extraction of starch from potatoes. Of course, all the metal files may not have been left in the luggage, and it is easily possible that we may have overlooked some of it. Letter number five, April 9th, 1940. I'm not at all happy about you, Father, not taking a holiday. Don't talk yourself out of it. You really need one. During this time, Julio invented the Grizzly Grip, a rooftop car carrier that could be suctioned onto the roof to carry luggage or skis. Two models were displayed at the Cadillac Motor Car Showroom in New York City. But as my grandmother wrote to Julio, the salesman, Walter de Grace, wasn't working out so well. Regarding Grizzly Grip, we are sorry to inform you that we had a very exciting scene in our office last night. We do not know anymore how to get along with Mr. de Grace and ask you to tell him immediately that he should stop his activity until you return. He first said he would quit by himself. However, he is still sitting on his desk and we do not have the impression that he will leave. We cannot throw him out. I remember my dad mentioning the roof racks, maybe even the name, Grizzly Grip. 
But all I gathered was that the idea was too far ahead of its time, that it never got off the ground. I get the sense that the officials who were reading his correspondence thought Yulia was spinning out of control. I think Yulio is a bit of a fumbler, messing around in a number of things which he thinks may succeed. He has got vast wealth. He is out of his element in language, customs, environment. He is middle-aged. He is mentally lost. The siege of the doomed capital of Poland, the city under bombardment. Blasted and burning for three weeks, one of the bravest defenses in history, the hopeless resistance of devastated Warsaw. As the war gets closer, Julio is desperate to bring family and friends over from Europe, often sending affidavits on their behalf. On February 8, 1940, he wrote to the American Consul General in Zurich, Switzerland, in support of Dr. Ernest Locke's his wife, Dr. Mina Locks, and their son, Thomas Georg Locks. I am the owner of two buildings in New York and have a considerable interest in a third one, the Homebright Apartments, and shall put at the disposal of Dr. Locks and his family an apartment in one of these buildings. Very truly yours, Julio Metal. The Locks got out, but so many others didn't. Maurice writes to Julio that same year. Dear Papa, I had another letter from Benno Igre from Denmark. To my great dismay, he writes that Heinrich Igre has been transferred to Buchenwald concentration camp a few weeks ago. I can see Julio was sending money to the Jewish Youth Relief. December 13, 1939, he gave 2,000 rice marks, about $800 U.S. at the time. A month later, 800 rice marks for help and reconstruction. February 29, 1940. Julio writes to the American Consul General in Bucharest to get my aunt and uncle out of Romania. I hope you will be kind enough to grant a visitor's visa to my daughter so that it will be possible for us to see each other again. It has been a long time that I have not seen my daughter. He also petitioned British authorities on their behalf. He has also applied for permission to bring from Romania his son-in-law Edwin Rudic. The man, he claims, is a noted and wealthy brewer in Romania, and Metal wishes our immigration authorities to wire the British consulate authorities in Bucharest to visa the passports of Rudic and his wife for a trip to Newfoundland to examine into the wild berry industry in this country. Yours sincerely, Commissioner for Justice Lewis Edward Emerson. I find out that because they are brewing beer for the German army, my Aunt Camilla and Uncle Edwin get a reprieve. Their deportation order was cancelled. Keeping in mind that we are lacking specialized workers in the beer, liquor, and alcohol industry, these Jewish workers cannot be replaced with ethnic Romanian workers. And if they will be evacuated, these industries will suffer inflicting great losses to the state budget and putting numerous Christian workers out of work, causing union unrest. We recommend these Jews, previously nominated, to stay put. In the Solomon Rudic Brewery, the following workers are needed. First, Edwin S. Rudic, owner and licensed beer maker. Second, Stern Solomon, master beer maker. Third, Shedel Moses, 
Master liquor maker. I still can't get over the fact that brewing beer saved their lives. But Yulio's time in Newfoundland was about to come to an end. There had been an editorial in the Telegram, from what I could gather, about what were they doing here. So I think that there was, I guess, a certain xenophobia that was happening here at the time. And people were definitely questioning, what are these men doing here? What are the conditions at this camp, this logging camp? Um, Who are these people and why are they here? And who are they associated with? There's a name that keeps coming up. 18th of February, 1940. Following information for appropriate counter-espionage authority. Julio Metal and Maurice Metal, claiming Polish nationality and holding Liechtenstein passports, arrived here in December. Their telegrams and letters show them in indirect contact with Count Lazarus Henkel von Donnersmark. Count Lazarus Henkel von Donnersmark. Count Lazi, for short. In my box of papers, a Henkel von Donnersmark appears on a British MI5 index of suspects. 12th of March, 1940. Number 132 secret. In view of statement that metals have been in contact with von Donnersmark, they must be regarded with considerable suspicion, and it would not be desirable to continue negotiations with them. Not long after that, my Uncle Maurice was expelled from Newfoundland. And Yulio, who'd been going back and forth, was barred from entering. Their lumber business abandoned. 1,000 cords of scaled timber was left to rot in the woods. What would have happened if this really successful industry had been established in Seminar at the time? How different could things have been? We'll never know because they were really driven out of the province. And I guess all those men were laid off and, and the industry failed. Even though Yulio was a Jew who fled Nazi-controlled Europe, Newfoundland officials thought he was some kind of spy. Maybe even for the Nazis. I had an opportunity on the train to read the whole of the metal file, somewhat disconnected fragments as heretofore, but as a complete story, Yulio Metal is undoubtedly a refugee. He is a Jew. His property is, I believe, the subject of attack. My uncertainty arises from the fact that government has not confiscated his properties. When Hitler came to power in 1933, Yulia was a wealthy property owner. A man with businesses across Europe. A banker. An industrialist. A Jew. The kind of person Hitler wanted to eliminate. I learned that Yulio was on Hitler's hit list. The Zondon Fondun list of Gay Bay. The Gestapo Black Book. It's a list of 2,800 people to be arrested if the Nazis had invaded England. Winston Churchill, Rebecca West, Aldous Huxley, Paul Robeson, and Sigmund Freud were on the list. So was Yulio. Maybe the Nazis mistakenly assumed he was in England since both my dad and my uncle had lived there. Julio must have had a sense of what the future in Germany looked like for him. Every day I'm waiting on news about Julio. 
My trackers span the globe. Santa Monica, Vienna, Jerusalem, Barcelona, Berlin. A Viennese genealogist leads me to a Berlin genealogist, who then leads me to a Berlin historian. It's my latest eureka moment. I find my truth teller. My name is Beate Schreiber. I'm a Berlin historian and do research into, let's say, Aryanization and confiscation of Jewish property in Germany and uh, occupied territories. In 2008, she published a paper on two Jewish landowners in Berlin whose properties were confiscated by the Nazis. One of them was Julio. I've been strongly advised not to talk about this part of the story. Your grandfather would not want you to tell this story. Your father would not want you to tell this story. What happened long ago should stay put. But I'm telling it anyway. Under Hitler, banks foreclosed on loans to Jewish property owners. Some of Julio's real estate went into liquidation. So he made a connection with Count Lazarus Henkel von Donnersmark, the man that officials in Newfoundland were concerned about. He was a wealthy German aristocrat. His family has a coat of arms, a castle in Austria. After 1933, somehow... Julio Metall made a contact between Henkel von Donnersmark and his uh, family trust and the Eidgenössische Bank. And they tried to negotiate how to deal with the dead pledges. The dead pledges? They're kind of like mortgages. Basically, Julio made a deal with Henkel von Donnersmark to take over his mortgage properties. I'd been told that Julio had signed over his properties to Henkel von Donnersmark with the agreement that when the political situation changed, they would split the value of the properties 50-50. That the agreement was made on good terms. A gesture of help. Somehow, we don't know for sure, Henkel von Donnersmark went behind the back of Julio Metall and negotiated on different terms with the Eidgenössische Bank itself. It was November 1938, a month after Julio had left for New York City. Henkel von Donnersmark cut his own deal with the Swiss bank to buy up Julio's loans, the dead pledges. These pledges were um, valued with, let's say, roughly 4.7 million Reichsmark, and Henkel von Donnersmark paid 500,000 Swiss francs for it. Put it another way, he got about $2 million in property for just $110,000. About 6% of the value. But the Eidgenössische Bank was somehow knowing that Julio Mutai would able to fight against this agreement with Henkel von Donnersmark and they couldn't deny the ownership of Julio Mutai of the real estate. That was a problem. And that's why the Eidgenössische Bank went to court for six different cases and they submitted their... Claims at the state court. Of Basically, Berlin. the bank knew it couldn't just hand over the mortgages to Henkel von Donnersmark. So the bank filed six lawsuits in Berlin. Julio was represented by three of his lawyers, all Jewish, all disbarred by the Nazis, all forced to take the last name Israel. 
His lawyers argued that the properties were worth much more than what Henkel von Donnersmark was paying for them. So the bank nominated an expert, Reibeholtz, to do some assessments on the properties. It's really complicated. So complicated. The assessor couldn't figure it all out without the help of Julio's lawyer, Georg Richard Albrecht Israel. But he'd already been deported to a concentration camp. They actually had to send for him to come back to Berlin. Yeah, yeah, I think he was sent to Theresienstadt, Terechin, in uh, nearby Prague. And then he had to come back because uh, Reiberholz asked for him and said, okay, we can't Aryanize this property without him. The Nazis needed Yulia's Jewish lawyer to help them confiscate his properties. And that saved Georg Israel's life. While the legal case grinds on, Yulio is desperate to rescue friends and family in Europe, and he's also helping Jews who made it out. Edward Gans was a Jewish banker in Germany who also fled to New York where their paths crossed, and they bonded over a love of coins. Then I mentioned just by chance my coins, and when Mr. Metall uh, heard the word coin, he was absolutely electrified. Coins you have also, he cried out, I have also coins. This is from an oral history at UC Berkeley. Edward Gans died in 1991. At the time of this interview, he was 97 years old. After meeting only twice, Julio gave the down-on-his-luck Edward $5,000 to start a business with him. They named it Numismatic Fine Arts. It wasn't just coins. He saw the war coming, and he nurtured bigger ideas. From Edward, I learned something I'd never heard before. That Julio reached out to FDR to talk to him about rescuing Jews from the Third Reich. Requested an audience with President Roosevelt, which was granted. And he said to the president, I have two problems. I see the war coming, and the United States should buy from Canada the island of Newfoundland. My second problem are the Jews. You, the president, should come to an arrangement with Hitler and grant a portion of the United States to the Jews, I believe he named Dakota or Utah. Julio asked FDR to give sanctuary to the Jews in the Dakotas or Utah. Uh, the president received him very kindly, but as history taught us, nothing came out of it. I think about never knowing this for my entire life, that my grandfather met with FDR that Yulio had hope that he could bend the course of history. Yulio's veneration for the president continued. He ordered a well-known artist to create a medal uh, in honor of President Roosevelt, which he inscribed with the words, to a humanitarian. Unfortunately, I can't find any record of their meeting. Only Edward's recollection of Yulio being granted an audience with FDR. So I send an email to the FDR Library and Museum in Hyde Park, New York, to ask about the medallions Yulio had the U.S. Mint make for the president. I'm Michelle Frauenberger, and I'm the museum collections manager here at the FDR Library. 
So, you know, I, I got your, your email. And so often, probably more often than not when we're asked about something, we unfortunately don't have it in the collection. And I was very excited to see that we had this particular item in our collection and not only had it, but we had some background information, which is the other thing that we don't have a lot. We walk up the stairs and enter a glass-walled room surrounded by books. The medallions are in a small royal blue velvet case. They are platinum, gold, and silver. On December 31, 1940, Yulio writes, My dear Mr. Roosevelt, may I take the liberty to congratulate you on the inauguration of your third term in office. I am sending you this medal, which I respectfully dedicated to you, with the expression of my very highest esteem. I beg to remain, yours very truly, Yulio Medal. Respectfully dedicated, Yulio Medal, numismatist, Santa Monica, California. He must have had such optimism to be doing that. And it's a beautiful set, too. This is the platinum. Mm -hmm. It's heavy. You can see there's a lot of density to that. But then when you find the story behind it, there's so much more, you know. I mean, your grandfather was an immigrant, and he had this whole story, unfortunately, ended rather tragically. You know, he admired FDR so much to go through and hire somebody and have these specially made just for FDR. There's other documents stored with the medallions. I find out that Yulio had given one of the medallions to a typist in Roseville, Oregon. At this point, he was running sawmills in Oregon, driving up and down the coast. That typist wrote a letter to the FDR library, hoping to learn more about her medallion. Can you give me any information about an FDR medallion that I've had for over 50 years? It was given to me by a fellow I did public steno work for on his trips to Roseburg, Oregon. Yulio Metal was quite a character and I have thought about him many times. I did all kinds of things for him, including shorthand dictation, correspondence, and some very long, detailed lists of some kind of machinery he seemed to be buying up around the country. I don't remember much about our first meeting, but the second and last was rather amusing. He was really chomping at the bit, and could hardly wait for me to get off work and get started on his stuff. He was waltzing around back and forth behind me, reading his mail and dictating replies, mostly to foreign countries, and I was scribbling shorthand and typing on my little portable typewriter. I've often wondered whatever happened to him. Ah, memories. Thanks again, Billy Hoff. My grandfather hands out precious medallions to a typist he barely knows. It's now 1941. Yulio and my grandmother Jenny, and now my dad, are living in a house in Santa Monica. Yulio is making deals, always working. And he's still fighting the lawsuits from afar. The lawsuits mounted by the Idigenoisich Bank to prove that they could legally hand over 122 of Yulio's properties to Henkel von Donnersmark. Yulio spent an enormous amount of money to defend his property rights. Hundreds of thousands in today's dollars. He must have been under so much pressure 
If you think about it, the outcome is no surprise. The Eidegenoisich Bank and Henkel von Donnersmark won the cases. The letter announcing the decision from the Berlin court is signed Heil Hitler. All those properties. Kopenhagenstraße 41. The ruling was made on October 30, 1941. Two months earlier, Julio had already given up. He took his own life on August 27, 1941. Man's death laid to war worry. That was a headline announcing Julio's death in the L.A. Times. Maybe the editors at the newspaper wanted to focus public attention on the war in Europe. I asked Beata Schreiber, the Berlin historian who has spent so much time researching my grandfather, her thoughts on his state of mind. Are you able, sort of in a little bit of a nutshell, to tell me what you think led to Julio's suicide? I think because he was depressed. Because in my opinion and experience, suicides are not caused by a single single event. I think he was really um, under, under pressure since 1933. And many people took their lives because they had to deal with the with the pressure and the discrimination and the policy against them. Julio must have had a sense of impending doom as Nazi Germany was swallowing up more and more territory across Europe. And maybe he felt the added guilt of getting out when so many others couldn't. From the death certificate. I know that Julio is buried in Santa Monica at Woodlawn Cemetery. So two years and ten days after I began this journey, I go back to where it all started for me, Santa Monica. I'm walking around with my sound engineer, Ryan Lentini, and we meet a man named Arthur. Uh-huh. 17th Street. All right, well, 17th Street is that one. That's parallel with 14th Street over there. And there's Pico Boulevard. That's kind of near where my father's buried, because he's in 13S. Arthur knows his way around. If you went in a straight line, it would be that way. Actually, your loved one's closer to uh, Ted Bessel, I would think, from the That Girl television series. I don't know. You're not that old. Okay. Uh, Marlo Thomas? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. (laughs) He played the boyfriend. Well, thank you. All right. You're welcome. I hope my teeth weren't yellow. (laughs) Oh, that brick wall. Okay. So did he say it was before the brick wall or after the brick wall? We're going here. And he said kind of that direction, right? 
Okay, there's 13S. And so we'll probably just go further, right? But he said not beyond the brick wall, right? We're looking for metal, M-E-T-A-L. It's in this section. I guess we just have to go back and forth and see, right? Check everyone. 1918, 1965, 1912. Are these the Masonics? Is that? Yeah, those Arthur's father. He said he was close to Arthur's father. So we know we're close. We know it's here, right? Or is it on the other side of that wall? Jeez, I did not know this would be so hard to find it. There's 20. Yep. There's 14. So I would think it would be right around okay. where we are. Okay. <gasps> here it is. Oh, wow. Oh. I never thought I'd find it. It's such a simple gravestone. Just seeing it is really... It... There's nothing, it doesn't say who he was. Husband, father, refugee, nothing. Just Julio Metal, 1879, 1941. His life ended so suddenly, he ended his own life. They just must have had to rush to put it all together. They didn't feel like writing father or husband. They didn't write any of that. They just had this very Viennese looking leaf pattern on the left. Did it look Viennese to you? I think it was a lily. Was it a lily? I think so. Okay. Well, there you go. I named my daughter Lily. Nobody ever mentioned this. My dad, nothing, nobody. I knew he was buried in Santa Monica, but it wasn't anything that my dad wanted to talk about. I think I've spent all my life not knowing anything about him. Or it was all fiction, it was fairy tale. And just the last two years have been this search and discovery and more searching and more discoveries. And, and here I am where it ended. I mean, I think I've wanted to understand where my dad was coming from more deeply. I had to go back a generation because I didn't have any attachment to what I would find. I'll never really know why Julio decided to end his life in that house in Santa Monica with my dad in the next room. I just know that his death had a profound effect on my dad, on me, on my mom and brother, like a domino. The domino that keeps flipping through our families, through history. Two years after Yulio's suicide, my dad became a professional secret keeper. 
an intelligence officer for the Office of Secret Services, the precursor to the CIA. He was trained in how to put a lid on it. There were many mysteries floating around in my childhood, but I didn't even know they were mysteries until I started uncovering Yulio's story. My dad hid in plain sight. My dad who survived. My dad who's no longer alive. In my box of papers, I find out that he goes by another name I'd never heard before. Ned. I want to talk to the people who knew him, who maybe knew what he was hiding. That's what I'm working on now. Recovering Ned. Since we put out episode one, we learned of a correction that we need to make. In the episode, we mentioned that Georg Richard Albrecht Israel was deported to Theresienstadt, but then brought back to work on Julio's real estate lawsuits. The Nazis needed help to confiscate Julio's properties. But Julio had two lawyers named Georg, and only one of them survived Nazi persecution. It was actually his lawyer, Georg Maximilian Homburger, who was sent to Theresienstadt, where he died at the age of 53. The other Georg, Georg Richard Albrecht Israel, was sent first to the police prison at Alexanderplatz and then to the Jewish hospital in Berlin. The hospital served as a collection point for deportations to concentration camps. There's a note in the record stating that the secret police would not release Georg, meaning deport him to a camp. Georg Israel was to remain at the Jewish hospital to continue his work on sorting out Yulio's real estate holdings until the work was completed. Georg survived, and he later worked on the restitution cases for my family. <laughs> 